This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. And me, Norman Swan. Norman, I want to talk today about something I personally live in fear of. Everyone heard it in the gym. Some people have described it like a gunshot, but it just sounded like a big snap. Ouch. What (laughs) snapped? I'll still give you the spoiler. It was his Achilles tendon. Right. Oh, God, yeah. It's certainly fearful. I'll be talking about uh, ice and uh, a really serious complication of ice and how it could be dealt with, which does link to one of your stories in a sense. That's right. Uh, Heart transplants for people with heart failure and maybe a high-tech future for heart transplants. But, Norman, what have you been looking at this week? Well, one of the things that hit me was an Australian trial of vitamin D. Uh, this is a m- One of your favourite topics. Well, that's right. Um, I prefer to get it from the sun. <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk about vitamin D over the last few years. It doesn't seem to work very well for um, osteoporosis. And every time it's looked at for you know, the marvellous things that it might do, unfortunately, they don't seem to pan out that well. Anyway, this was a study, massive trial, 21,000 people, looking at a single dose a month of, so it's a large dose. Instead of taking your vitamin D daily, you take a 60,000 international units once a month, uh, randomised you know, placebo, so 10,000 in each group to see whether or not it reduced premature mortality. In other words, did it actually let you live longer? Bottom line, uh, no, it didn't. And in fact, there was a signal of increased risk of death from cancer, which vitamin D is supposed to be you know, being touted as preventing cancer. So it's a bit of a worry. These were in older people aged over 60. Um, so it doesn't mean that maybe a low daily dose of vitamin D might not work. But certainly if you load it up and take it all in one month, which has been one way suggested of taking your vitamin D. Um, and these were in unscreened individuals. So in other words, they, 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 these were people who were just suspected to have you know, to need vitamin D rather than testing them for it. So, you know, once a month, I would not be jumping in that too soon. What have you been looking at? I've been looking at babies. Well, I've been looking at, uh, well, you mentioned really big data sets. (laughs) We babies. Uh, Victoria, you mentioned data sets before, has one of the biggest data sets in the world when it comes to pregnancy screenings, a prenatal diagnosis for genetic conditions. And uh, basically back in 1976, uh, someone started collecting invasive screening uh, test numbers in Victoria. So that's the sorts of things that people... Uh, Amniocentesis or Coriolis sampling, that sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of people, when they get pregnant, they want to know whether their baby has a genetic condition, um, especially if they know that they're at a higher likelihood of this because, for example, older mums are more likely to have babies with Down syndrome. And, yeah, it used to be kind of the main way you could find this out was with an invasive procedure which comes with a risk of miscarriage. So... The Murdoch Children's Research Institute has been collecting this data for decades and decades now, and it's really interesting. Invasive screenings are way down now compared to the peak in the 90s, which was about 9% of pregnant women, and now it's at about 2 or 3%. And part of that's because invasive screening is way more accurate than it used to be. There are fewer false alarms, but it's also better at picking up conditions. And I sort of thought, oh, this is a really good news story. Like it's a triumph mm. of science. And it is, but <laughs> there's always a but, right? Mm. I spoke to Lisa Hoy, who we've talked to before on this show. She's one of the authors of the report. And what she says now is the problem is that there's a disparity of access to the best form of screening. So there's a, there's a procedure called non-invasive prenatal testing, NIPT. It's basically a blood test that the mum takes that can sort of detect some of the baby's DNA in the bloodstream. But, um, I mean, these choices, these screening tests are 
optional. You don't have to have them. But she makes the point that some of them are subsidised and some of them aren't. But it's the inferior tests that are subsidised and this gold standard test isn't currently. Mm, Something we should probably pursue on the show at some point soon. Mm. Anyway, Norman, you mentioned heart failure before. Uh, It affects tens of thousands of Australians. And one of them is Brisbane man Paul, who I spoke to this morning. He has a genetic condition which causes atrial fibrillation, which is where the upper parts of your heart are beating out of sync with the lower parts, which has put him into congestive heart failure. And he described to me what that feels like. Initially, it didn't require much. I just kind of avoided those extreme activities, extreme exertion. I was really well managed all through my 20s and in my 30s and even into my 40s. And then I started to have quite a lot of arrhythmias. I've also had atrial fibrillation, and it's really one of the big problems for me. It feels like a horse kicking in your chest and in the back of your throat. It makes you sweat. It makes you feel uneasy, quite a bit anxious sometimes. Tiredness, of course breathlessness. In the last year, it's become a real problem and it's been a constant daily thing. The congestive heart failure is very much linked with the disease itself, but also made worse by the atrial fibrillation. I'll wake up in the middle of the night. I can hear crackling on my lungs and it's, I can't breathe. There's a sense I can't exhale. And even when I'm asleep, I'm kind of dreaming about that too. And then it wakes me up. That's one of the worst things for me. And the constant fatigue. The transplant, it has been discussed as a potential option. I don't think I'm quite there yet. Although some days I feel like I'm almost at stage four. I remember somebody who's had a transplant telling me that um, when you have a transplant, you swap one set of problems for another. There's a whole range of medications that make people feel really awful. I kind of want to stay as fit as I can. So that's Brisbane man, Paul. And like Paul said, heart transplants can come with their own problems and that's if you can even get one. So researchers are looking for ways around this, including Chris Hayward from the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, who is working on what he hopes will pave the way to the first permanent artificial heart. Currently, we do have what we call mechanical hearts or artificial hearts, but they're only supporting one side of the heart. With the heart, There's two main pumping chambers, the left side and the right side. The left side pumps all the way around the body, and that's the one that usually fails. So the current pumps uh, support the left side of the heart, and they're called left ventricular assist devices, or LVADs for short. And what the new pump does, it actually replaces the entire heart, and so it replaces both the left and the right, and that means that the blood flow is supported going through the lungs as well as around the body. The reason for that is probably at least a third of patients who have really bad heart failure and need a mechanical heart have impaired heart function on the right side as well. And so at the moment, we put a left side pump in and sort of take the pressure off and we rely on the right side trying to hang in there and cope until we get to the point of transplant. And so the new pump will take over both sides of the heart. But it's still a temporary measure. At the moment, it's still a temporary measure. And so certainly what we are planning with the clinical trial to start in the next 12 months is what's called a bridge to transplant device, which means that these are patients who we would be looking towards putting on the heart transplant waiting list and having a heart transplant. And we put the pump in to keep them going because they are so unwell that they're unlikely to make it to transplant due to the waiting period. So what are you doing now with these human trials that's different to what's been done before? This is a brand new pump. So this kind of pump has not been used 
anywhere in the world before. And we are working here and uh, the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne to get it to the point that we can do a formal early feasibility clinical trial. And so that's really testing first in human type level. Okay, this is a new pump. We want to be sure that it works for the patients and is safe for the patients. We are looking at 10 participants and supporting them until transplant. And so we anticipate they'll probably be on pump for up to six months, maybe 12 months between here and uh, the Alfred Hospital, here being St Vincent's and the Alfred. For the patient, you've got someone who's coming to you with a very poor heart function. They go on a product like this and then they're sort of biding their time until they get a heart transplant, but there's a gap between the number of hearts that are available to be transplanted and the number of people who are waiting for them. Can you paint a picture of what this journey is like for the patient? If we look at our current waiting list of patients waiting for a heart transplant, about half of them at the moment are supported on one of our left ventricular assist devices, so the single chamber device. They're at home, they're getting out and about. One of the main reasons we use the left ventricular assist devices is really to get the patients mobile again, get them rehabilitated, get them stronger to the point that they have a more successful heart transplant. The aim for the mechanical support is to support all the other organ systems which also suffer when the heart's not pumping strongly. There are some limitations that they can't do. They can't go for a swim because the pumps are electric and they have a, a power cord that comes out through the skin just under the rib cage. But otherwise, they can get back to driving. We've had patients riding bikes, playing tennis, playing golf, things that they haven't been able to do at all before while they've had heart failure. What's the quality of life like after a transplant and how long do people typically live? Heart transplants is and it remains the gold standard sort of definitive treatment for severe heart failure and the average survival. So we, we talk about a median survival, which means that you know 50% of our transplant patients, how long do the 50% of them live? In Australia, it's around 15 to 16 years, which is excellent. These are patients who without a transplant, we wouldn't expect to live one or two years. And so we can increase their uh, longevity very, very significantly. But also really importantly, the quality of life is so much better post-heart transplantation. And I always like to put it to the patients that, you know, we want to get them back out there paying taxes. We want to get them working, going back to normal activities. You know, we don't want to put a patient up for transplant if we don't think that they're going to be able to enjoy the benefit that it will offer them. You know, if they're unable to, for a myriad other reasons, unable to uh, improve their quality of life after a transplant, then it is a big ask for them to go through. And we wouldn't put them through a transplant if we didn't expect that they'd have a very significant improvement in quality of life. You're expecting the quality of life after this new device is put in to be similar to the quality of life that someone with a heart transplant might enjoy? I would hope so. Yes, I would certainly hope so. The one caveat I do have with the current technology of the pumps is that patients can't swim. And sometimes that's a real deal breaker, even with our left ventricular assist devices. You know, patients don't like the concept of not being able to swim. They can have a shower, you know, so for short term, but um, there is that kind of quality of life that is limited. Now, long term, 10 years down the track, I would certainly hope that we will have the technology to have completely implantable batteries incorporating a controller with uh, rechargeable capacitors to allow the batteries to charge internally. And so at that point, it will be 
a bit like a pacemaker. You know, you go in and have an operation, have a procedure. The battery's all internally implanted. The pacemaker is doing its job, or in this case, the, the heart is doing its job. And every five to 10 years, you need to change the batteries to a new set of batteries, but the pump just carries on. And so that is the holy grail when everything is completely implantable. That is the next generation of devices, really, to show that we can achieve the same quality of life as a transplant. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye. So that's Professor Chris Hayward, a heart failure cardiologist at the St Vincent Heart Failure Transplant Unit. Well, this year is the 40th anniversary of the first artificial heart. Really? It is. Which was given to Dr Barney Clark, a dentist, coming to the University of Utah. He was in terminal heart failure because of steroid damage to his heart. And Bill DeVries, who was a heart surgeon and working with um, a developer called Robert Jarvik, produced the Jarvik heart. And uh, so Chris Hayward was talking there about you know batteries being external, not being able to swim. So Barney Clark had tubes coming out of his <laughs> chest driving. So this wasn't a left ventricular assist device. This was a whole heart going in. And um, unfortunately, well, he, he lived for 112 days after he got this heart. I mean, it was just impractical. He was stuck on external compressors and so on. And I remember seeing that, that in action even many years later. You know Doctor, the infamous Dr. Oz who does it? <laughs> yes. So he actually is a cardiac surgeon. And I first met Mehmet Oz when he was just a regular cardiac surgeon at uh, Columbia. And I met somebody who had one of the advanced Jarvik hearts then, you know, many years later, and still walking around with the compressor. So it's moved along a long way. I know that you just knew that off the top of your head and you definitely weren't Googling it while we were listening. How dare you say that? (laughs) So take us back to the the Achilles tendon. Oh, yes. I live in fear. I don't know why. I think it's probably um, irrational. But we were, I was contacted by Nick, who's a physiotherapist, uh, but he's ruptured his Achilles recently and it it just turned my stomach. Uh, Anyway, Nick's story starts when he was doing a jumping exercise in the gym. And it was the third set and I was on fire and I landed and I felt something give and apparently there was a loud snap. Did you hear it? Yes. Everyone heard it in the gym. What did it sound like? Some people have described it like a gunshot, but it just felt sounded like a big snap. Because I'm a physio, I've heard about this injury before and an Achilles tendon rupture. I was like, yep, I've ruptured my Achilles. Very bad news. I didn't expect the decision regarding surgery to be so involved or complicated. I've always been on the other end, like the decision's already been made, the surgery, and then I see them in my career either on a ward or in outpatients or in community, right? The Mm -hmm. surgeon's already made the decision. And it was interesting to see that there was a lot more to it than just, oh, yeah, we'll fix you. My expectations were upended. This came out of the blue. There's no history of tendonitis in my Achilles. It's a long process of four to six months before you can return to sport. Swim and biking are offered. I can walk short distances with the can boot without crutches, but it gets quite tired very quickly. So that's physiotherapist Nick Mock, who's ruptured his Achilles recently. Uh, so I thought I wanted to dig into a bit more about Achilles tendon rupture. So I went to an expert, which in this case was Peter Maliaris from Monash University. Age is a big factor. Activity is probably a big factor as well. So the more active you are, we never give the advice to people to stop being active. But if you are suddenly doing things that are completely out of the realms of what you should be doing, that's clearly a problem. 
There's also metabolic factors. So we know that if you're more overweight or have got metabolic issues like uh, elevated cholesterol, that is a risk factor for developing further degeneration in the tendons. We know that genetics are a strong risk factor. So for example, and this is a pretty scary statistic, but if you've had a rupture of one tendon, the odds ratio for rupturing the other tendon is 161. So 161 times elevated chance of rupturing the opposite tendon because the risk of rupture is quite low in the general population. How does it compare to other injuries? In terms of sport injuries, injuries that people are likely to have, joint, tendon, whatever, how does it compare? The way that we think about injuries are how prevalent they are, so how many people get them, but also how much impact they have. So if you're thinking about prevalence of Achilles injuries, they're not very prevalent. It's probably one or two percent of the population will get a rupture at uh, some point in their life. And possibly about five percent of the population will get Achilles tendinopathy, so a painful Achilles tendon. So they're not very prevalent but they can have quite a big impact. If you're thinking about an Achilles rupture, it is quite a catastrophic injury where it will prevent you from pretty much doing everything in your daily functions, you know, including walking, running, driving for a fair period of time. And they can take a long time to recover. The other thing that I think is an untold truth about them, because we just don't have the data, is how much impact they have on a consequential health level. So for example, people with Achilles tendinopathy, they often have real problems walking afterwards, especially if you're getting to your 70s and 80s and you suffer an Achilles issue. It's very hard to overcome completely and recover and get back to your normal walking. And walking is just so important for your general health. And I see those in the clinic with some of the patients that I treat. You lose muscle tone, you lose fitness, you lose strength, you become deconditioned, and people find it very hard to then get back to walking and doing things. So is pain a good predictor of your risk of rupture down the track, or can it just happen spontaneously? Or can people live with pain for ages and it not actually affecting them too much? It seems to be the case that people develop tendon pathology and that's just really changes in the tendon structure. So the tissue is less strong than what it was and it sort of happens with age. Then there's two pathways. One is people develop pain or they develop rupture and it doesn't seem to be that you cross over very much, which is really interesting. There's a really large study, population study, that was done in a Scandinavian country. And in this study, they had just short of a 1,000 tendons. I should say there were 1,000 tendons that had ruptured. Two-thirds have never had pain before when they ruptured. So most people that rupture have never experienced pain before they rupture, which is really interesting. So you don't really get that you know, warning pain-wise before. The thought is that maybe when you've got pain, you're a bit more protective, you're a bit more careful, you don't push it so much, and it's a protective factor. You can reassure patients by saying, look, if you've got pain, you're probably not going to go on to then rupture your tendon. I'm smiling because I have Achilles pain and I'm like, yes. (laughs) It's seriously a fear of mine. I'm like, am I just going to like fall off something one day and just have that gunshot feeling in my calf? If it reassures you, it's a fear of probably most patients. The responses to Achilles pain can be quite varied, but some people will be very fearful and just reduce their activity completely. And that's counterproductive in the long term. Other people will just ignore it. But even in the people that ignore it and they just keep going and pushing through, the pain may get to a point where it limits their activity, but they don't get to a point where it ruptures. It does seem to be a separate pathway. So you're probably not going to rupture. Segan? 
So if you're someone who's worried about your tendons, maybe every tendon, but maybe specifically your Achilles, what's the best preventative? Probably the most important factor is load because it's a very load-sensitive tissue. You've got to be careful to graduate changes in your loading. So you've got to gradually increase your running or increase your walking, whatever you're doing, and that will reduce your chance of getting this sort of sudden change in the tendon structure. I think body weight and BMI is a factor. General health is a factor, and that could involve strength training over time, especially as you get older and you're starting to get weaker, especially if you want to be very active as you get older. You've got to make sure that you maintain some strength. They're sort of some of the key factors. And what about, okay, so it's happened, that sucks. What do we know about treatment and recovery? For Achilles rupture, you've got two options. You've either got a surgery option or you've got a conservative option, so non-surgical. And the non-surgical involves a boot, usually about six to eight weeks in a sort of lifted heel position, and then that's weaned off so then you can start to gradually put some weight through the foot. You're immobilised so you're not walking for a few weeks and then gradually start doing exercise and get your strength back. The other way is surgery. So the surgeon will basically try and tie up the ends of the tendon together. The interesting thing is that there really isn't any difference in outcome. In the short term and long term, your outcomes are probably going to be quite similar whether you have surgery or not, but it is slightly higher with non-surgical care. So that's one factor for patients to consider. Aside from that, the outcomes are pretty similar whether you have surgery or whether you have non-surgical care. So that's Associate Professor Peter Maliaris, who's a physiotherapist and co-director of the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit. So be careful what you wish for. Did you ask him about <laughs> stretching? You know, you see everybody going, you know, stretching their calves and that's going to stretch their Achilles. I wonder if that works. I don't know. I still stretch anyway. Yeah. Out of superstition. Yeah, there's a lot of bullshit about stretching. <laughs> But let's get back to heart failure. But this is actually mostly in young people and it's entirely preventable. There's a paradox about methamphetamine use in Australia. A smaller proportion of people are actually using meth, which is good news. But the complications, especially in the heart, are not disappearing. And some experts believe they may in fact be increasing. Now, if that's true, the reason could be that the purity and potency of methamphetamine through ice, the crystalline form of meth, are going up and along with it the likelihood of harm. And the heart is one of the most effective organs with meth users having nearly a 30% increased risk of a sudden cardiac arrest associated with cardiomyopathy, toxic damage to the heart muscle. Well, a group at the Baker Institute in Melbourne has reviewed the evidence on methamphetamine-associated cardiomyopathy and how best to treat it. The lead author is cardiologist Dr Liz Peratz. Welcome to The Health Report, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us the typical story here. Well, the typical story is... I guess a bit atypical in a sense, it's not related to a clear dose of use. So we've looked after patients who've been using methamphetamines very heavily, um, but we've also looked after people who've used it recreationally just on the weekends, maybe high achieving professionals, and then suddenly they've got symptoms of heart failure, shortness of breath, chest pain, um, a rapid pulse rate. And so it's not predictable who gets it. But what is clear is that this cardiomyopathy, as you've said, that's a weakened heart muscle, heart failure. Um, It's a really bad kind. It's more severe and they end up really sick and much worse than the more traditional cardiomyopathy where, for example, someone's had a heart attack and has just a little bit of their heart damaged. These people have impairment of the whole heart muscle, really severe, sometimes to the point of almost needing a transplant. And we have seen people die. Yes. And... um, because heart failure does increase, and in any event, does increase the risk of heart of, heart, of cardiac arrest. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. So heart failure can lead to a lot of complications. Um, as you said, cardiac arrest, which is where the heart just stops and you have about a 90% chance of dying in that situation. Um, and we have seen young deaths. And when I say young, I mean 20-year-olds, very young people, um, but other things as well. Um, so, for example, we've seen, you know, people in their 20s have strokes from these cardiomyopathies um, and people have really bad intractable heart failure that's debilitating. And it's a toxic effect of the methamphetamine on the heart. Yes, we believe so. Um, and so there's been several studies in this. And so when you take methamphetamines in the short term, um, they have this very intense stimulant effect, which is somewhat desirable and a reason people take them. But it increases your heart rate, your blood pressure. It puts your heart under a lot of stress in the short term. Um, but it's also directly toxic to your heart muscle on the microscopic level. And so over time, that builds up. Um, and some people seem genetically to have this effect more pronounced than others. And so these people develop a really bad heart failure. Now, is this reversible? Because if you've got cardiomyopathy normally, it's a one-way street. That's exactly right. And so that's the really interesting thing about this particular type of cardiomyopathy is that um, the bad news is that it seems to be more severe than the traditional kind that might follow a heart attack. The good news is that it's, firstly, it's 100% avoidable if you don't use methamphetamines. But even if you've got it, um, evidence from our group and other groups around the world would seem to suggest it's actually highly reversible. Um, so you really can undo a lot of the damage. And we have people going from 10% of heart function and terrible symptoms to complete normalisation of heart function, but the key is stopping the methamphetamines. And that's obviously much harder than it sounds. Yes, because of disorganised behaviour. Because, I mean, I mean, is it indicated, for example, you can get these implantable defibrillators which can reverse the cardiac arrest if you go into what's called ventricular fibrillation. Is that, do you put those into people with um, methamphetamine-associated cardiomyopathy? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, actually. Um, so That's why the they pay me so much. <laughs> that's right. Um, the short answer is yes, people often are eligible for them and should be getting them. Um, but there's often a lot of concern with people who are using drugs actively and putting devices in them. And some of those concerns are about things like the infection of the device. If people are injecting a dirty drugs in their bloodstream, they're at very high risk of infection. And that's a big problem when you've got leads plugged into your heart that can get infected. So one study has shown that only 14% of young people who would be eligible on paper for such a device are getting them to stop a cardiac arrest because there's so much concern about the other risks with it. And I suppose if, if somebody's disorganised in their behaviour because of methamphetamine, and by the way, for listeners, we've, we had a, 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 you can go back in the health report over Christmas, we ran a series, one of which was on, um, was on methamphetamine. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily a one-way street in terms of drug use either. But you do use medications for heart failure to take off the load in the heart, beta blockers, and also to reduce the fluid overload. Um, are they indicated? But presumably you've got a problem with people taking them. Absolutely. Um, to both parts of that question, so we do use those medications. Um, they do work and they're a key part of reversing the damage. Um, but yes, um, issues with people adhering to them and taking them regularly is a problem. Finances can be an issue in people who are using drugs. Um, and as I sort of alluded to earlier, the studies have shown, including from our group, the most powerful thing is abstinence from methamphetamines ahead of even the drugs. If you take the heart failure medications but don't stop the methamphetamines, you're probably not going to fully undo the damage. So A is for abstinence. Which means then, if you're in a cardiac unit looking after such people, and, and a friend of mine who's a cardiologist tells me of weekends where he spent 
in, a, in, a, in a, another major hospital looking after people with methamphetamine and cardiac problems. Um, you presumably have got to team up with a, a, a drug use team. That's right. And it's quite different to the rest of cardiology. Um, cardiology obviously has many facets these days, but a lot of our work is acute. You know, someone comes in with a heart attack, they have a stent, they go home, they might see their GP and there's sort of just a few people involved in their care. But this is a really multidisciplinary area of modern cardiology where um, if they go back to their share house where everyone's using methamphetamines, it's not going to change the situation. So making sure they have a supportive GP, linking in with drug and alcohol, um, psychology if possible, um, and working out who is their support network and getting a really clear social and familial history to work out who is sort of on their team and in their corner to help them abstain from methamphetamines is really important. It's the motivation that you could actually get a lot better. Luke, Liz, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Liz Peretz is a researcher and cardiologist at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne. This has been The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. And we will definitely see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.